If you're joining us for the first time today, we are in the middle, uh, kind of the middle, the first third anyway, of a study through the book of Revelation. And I'm out to prove to this congregation I could do it one chapter each week. All right? They're still holding their breath. They're not too sure. But uh, we are on chapter 7, and we have gone after the text seven times, seven chapters, seven. We did have one week before that introduced it, but that wasn't where we started. All right? Just so you know. Uh, We're on the week eight, but we're on chapter number seven today. Chapter seven. So follow along as I read to you this passage, Revelation chapter seven. Watch verse number 10. It is going to be the key verse that we center on today where it says, And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All right. So, starting in verse number 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. One of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robe, who are they? And where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more. Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb is in the center of the throne. He will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the waters of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is quite an incredible passage. We've got much to learn, so we better 
get started, right? Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege and the blessing it is to read it. Help us to understand today as we have much before us and help us to put it into our thinking. But most of all, Lord, in our understanding to respond to it because your word was meant to be responded to. And I pray that our hearts are open and ready for your message. There might be some who need to know Christ today. And this passage speaks of salvation. And I pray that you open their hearts. And for us as well, who read through this and know Christ as Savior, may we have another cause to praise you because of the things we see today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We are working our way through a very intriguing chunk of history that's yet to happen. I kind of like to say it that way. This is history, but it hasn't happened yet. Because God could say it, and he could even say all the things yet to come in the past tense, because he already knows it's going to happen. And that's the incredible nature of our God's knowledge. So he's recorded for us events that are yet to happen. So we read about these things, and we have a lot of questions, don't we? If you've been doing your homework, I asked you to read chapter 7 this week, and you might have about 14 different questions, maybe more, because of the nature of this chapter. I'm going to try to simplify it for you and talk through things that I believe are very, very important, and there are other things I'm going to leave for you to dig and dig and dig and dig and find them out, all right? I want you first, maybe some of you take notes, some of you don't, some of you could visualize what I'm about to do, because visualizing is helpful to me. I want you to picture four boxes behind me here. Box one, box two, box three, box four. Is that simple? I like boxes. All right. Box number one. These are going to represent different kinds of people at different times. As to their relationship with the Lord, people who follow him, people who trust him. Box number one, we're going to call them Old Testament saints. Old Testament saints. Starts all the way back in Genesis, folks. Believe it or not, we have Old Testament saints. Travel, if you want, everybody in this box, all the way through the Old Testament into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts chapter 1. That is the parameters of Old Testament saints. If you lived then, if you trusted the Lord, if you had died, you were an Old Testament saint. All right? Got that picture? That's box 1. Box number two are the church saints. The church saints. Acts chapter 2 is where it begins, and it goes until the rapture. I'm guessing that since we're still here, we're still in that box. We are in box number two, church saints. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're in that box right now. You're waiting until the rapture. Believe it or not, you will go in the rapture. Scripture says, whether you're alive or you're not, those who have fallen asleep will be first to go. That means they're going in the rapture. And those who are alive, follow them. That means you're going in the rapture. No matter what, if you're a Christian today in the church age, a believer in Jesus Christ, you're in box two. You're waiting for the rapture. Okay, you got that? That carries, if you want to think through things, it carries you to Revelation chapter 3. Right? Acts chapter 2 to Revelation 3. Got it so far? Third box. It was over here. Third box. 
Third box is what I call tribulation saints. Tribulation saints. Starting Revelation chapter 4, all the way through chapter 19. These are people who will trust the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. But it's not going to be an easy time to live. They're going to be believers during the tribulation period. All right? Now, yes, they will be. There will be some saved. We're going to talk about that today. That's why I'm emphasizing the box. So you know this is not, box three, is not the same box you're in. You got that? Tribulation saints are an entirely different group of people. And they will go through the tribulation. Their duration for that box is only seven years. The beginning of the tribulation to the end of the tribulation. That's their box. The last box is what I'm going to call millennial saints. Millennial saints. Someday we'll talk through this group too. But they start somewhere around chapter number 20 of the book of Revelation, and they last about three verses, maybe six. A thousand years, but there's not a lot of information in the book of Revelation about the millennial period, but they will be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ while he reigns on this earth. And believe it or not, there will be people who aren't believers on this earth during that time too. So we're going to make our own little box for these people. All right, That's the thousand-year reign of Christ, and that's box four. So I wanted to set you into a, a way of thinking. Old Testament saints, church saints, tribulational saints, millennial saints. It's important that you visualize this because when we start talking about Revelation chapter 7, we've got to be talking about the right group. We don't want to confuse the boxes. Right? And that's important for us to understand. When we get to chapter number 7, the recipients of this whole book are, is the church. We've already disturbed that when we started this book, we also determined that this book was written to the church to tell the church how much Christ loves them. The whole book is to tell you that Christ loves you, church. All right? Does it include tough things? Yes. It describes the tribulation period, which is terrible. And I told you last week, there's a reason why the church needs to see that. And it's not because we're going through it. It's because I believe we need to know, if Christ loves us thoroughly like he promises to do, and he does, then he also is the one who will revenge upon the earth what they have done to his church. Understand that? I talked last week quite a bit about that, and you can find it on our website. But this judgment is, yes, Christ is the only one worthy to open the book. And the reason for that in chapter 5 was because he had purchased the church, remember? With his own blood. He purchased that church. And as a result of that, he is the one who opens the book. And what is the book? Chapter 6, 7. We have these chapters in front of us. They are the book of wrath. The judgments. Why does he open up that book? Because this world has rejected his message. This world has rejected his messengers. The tribulation has everything to do with the fact that Jesus loves his church, and the world rejected our message about him, and so it will know his wrath. That's why it was written to the church. Now, if we were in a different part of the Bible, talking about the tribulation period, you would see it from a Jewish perspective. 
Why is there a tribulation for the Jews? It's because he's going to use the most traumatic moments in history to bring them to himself. He's going to take them through it. He doesn't take his bride through it. That's the church. He does take the Jews through it. So, different thing to set in your mind, but keep the box straight. All right? The church is not what he's, he's talking about in chapter number 7. The church has already been raptured. So he talks about judgment. And what we saw in chapter 6 already was that there were seven, seven seal judgments. The book he was opening, breaking them one by one. He got up to number 6 and he stopped. And that's where he left us last week. There were six judgments already opened up. I'll summarize them just for a second. Chapter 6, verse 1, he broke the first one open. And that was... A judgment with the Antichrist, chapter 1, 6, chapter, verse 1 and 2, the beginning of deception. He goes out and conquers the world through deception. Seal number 2 is broken in verse 3 and 4. And that was war, worldwide war on a scale this world has never seen. Chapter 3 was opened, famine, verse 5 and 6 of chapter 6. Famine, it's a natural result of war anyway, but it does follow. Chapter seven, uh, 6, 7, and 8, verse 7 and 8. Fourth seal judgment was death in the grave, which follows famine and follows war. And then we had another terrible thing going on in verse 7, verse number 8. It starts talking about uh, this famine to cover one-fourth of the earth. The death, the grave, and all involved. One-fourth of the earth's population is killed. That today would be an astronomical number for us. Out of an 8 billion, about 8 billion people in this world, we're talking about 2 billion people. Astronomical numbers. And believe it or not, folks, it gets worse. The fifth seal judgment is opened up. The people still... They don't turn to the Lord. Instead, they persecute his believers. These are the tribulational saints. Verse 6, or chapter 6, verse 9, 10, and 11. Tribulational saints. Box number 3, right? That's what I had. Box 3. Tribulational saints. They were martyred for their faith. They're asking, Lord, how long till you avenge us? There it is again. How long till you avenge us? The Lord says, just wait. The number's not done yet. There's more yet to die. And then the sixth seal is opened up, and we saw earthquakes and the moon and the sun and all these different things being changed at the end of uh, chapter number 6, verse 12, all the way through verse 17. So severe that the people of this earth want the world to collapse upon them so they're no longer under the wrath of the Lamb. They recognize it's him, but they refuse to repent. Amazing. Now, what I understand about this is not just that they know that it's happening, and they know who's doing it, and they know that it's not going to change, but they do not repent. Now, that's the first set of judgments. We still haven't hit number seven yet, have we? Hold on that. But that's the first set of the judgments. There are three sets. This is seal judgments. That's the first. Trumpet judgment, second. 
bow judgment third, and they increase in intensity all the way through. In seven years, this world will not be recognizable when it's all said and done. It's amazing that this is what it takes to show people what the Lord thinks of them opposing His bride and His message. Now, in case you're wondering, where's all the scriptural support for this? I said, this is going to take place over seven years. How do I know all that? Well, we could go to other passages. Daniel chapter 9 is our best passage, if you will. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. Wish I had a lot of time to process it with you. But it talks about the dates in there. The weeks, they call it. And the weeks represent seven years. And if you do the math, you'll find out how it all looks. But the last week before the Lord comes is the tribulation period. He defines it. He describes it here. And he says this in verse, I'll just read it, Daniel 9, 26 and 27. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. That's talking about Jesus' crucifixion. And have nothing. And then there's a big gap in time. And he says, and the people of the prince, that's the Antichrist, who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood, even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. A week represents seven years. Right? He will make a covenant with the many for one week. That's the Antichrist. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings, and on the wings of abominations will come who makes desolate, even until a complete desolation one that is, is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. There's a lot of words in there, I know. But what it's simply saying is the duration of the tribulation period will be seven years. And to imagine all this happening in that short span of time is incredible. It's incredible. I want to add, add this. That deals, this passage we're going to work from, chapter number seven, deals primarily with the Jews. When you talk about the tribulation period and what we're about to see here, uh, just like Daniel chapter 9, he's talking about the Jews. He's talking about the things that God is going to do with the Jews. And yet, we're going to find believers among them. And that's amazing to read as well. Let's walk through a few things. All right. Now, in chapter 7, you saw this phrase, verse number 10. Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is the theme of the entire chapter, believe it or not. I thought we were in judgment. Yes, we are. We're reading through judgment passage. It's almost like this. Chapter 6, judgment 1. That's bad. Judgment 2. That's bad. Chapter verse, the third judgment. That's terrible. It keeps on mounting. He gets to number 6. He says, wait a minute. Before you think... That the judgment is so strong that I don't love people enough to save them. Let me show you my power to save. Some people call this the interlude. I don't think it's the interlude exactly. He just says, I want to show you what I've been doing. While everyone's focused on judgment, and we normally do, don't we? When there's trouble, guess what we're always looking at? Trouble. What is our news 99% of the time? Trouble. We're attracted to it. We're sitting, oh, where's all the trouble? Here he says, stop for a minute. I want to show, show you. Salvation is still mine. 
It's still mine. I want you to see what they do. How do I know he's not talking about the church here in chapter number 7? How do I know that? How do I know we're not dealing with somebody else here? Well, when we talk about believers in the tribulation period, this third box, they are a unique group of people. They are not members of the church. The Old Testament saints are not members of the church. Box one. They were saved by faith, yes. But they didn't know about a crucifixion. They didn't know about a resurrection. They weren't told to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't know those things. They had to trust what they knew. God gave them enough so they could be Old Testament saints. They are not in the church. Millennial saints are not in the church. Tribulational saints are not in the church. Only the church box are believers. Why is that true? Because the church is the only group of believer baptized into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians talks about that. They're the only ones baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's the only group he does that with. He doesn't do that with tribulational, Old Testament, or millennial saints. They have a unique relationship, the church does. It's called the Bride of Christ. The Old Testament, they're not called the Bride of Christ. The tribulational saints are not called the Bride of Christ. The church is. The church is raptured out of this world before the tribulation. The tribulation has nothing to do with the church. During the tribulation, we, the church, goes to be with Jesus. We're in heaven with Jesus during that time. And what's happening for us? Well, just what he promised. We do not know what it shall be appear yet, but we know that when we see him, we shall be like him, where we shall see him as he is. You like that promise? That's for us. We shall see him. We shall be like him. It also says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, he's going to present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. In other words, when the church is presented to Christ, she's not incomplete. At the rapture, she's presented to Christ. He comes for his bride. She is not incomplete. She's finished. The product is done. What he's intended to have her become, that's what she's become. She's ushered into glory. She has the reward ceremony. I like to call it that. It sounds much better than the judgment of the believers. It's a reward ceremony. And what does those rewards do? They become the wedding gown for the church. You say, how do you know all that? Follow with me. Just preview. Chapter 19 of Revelation. Next time the church is shown... She's already dressed in her wedding gown. Chapter 19, verse 7. Watch these words. These are great. I love this passage. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. By the time you get to chapter 19, this verse, it's already done. That's the aorist tense in the Greek. They has come. Already has these things happened. They're all completed action. The bride has made herself ready. It was given to her. That's past tense too. Already done by the time you're reading it. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is what? The righteous acts. Acts of the saints. That means the reward ceremony has to go first. 
because what they earn, all the crowns and jewels and the precious things, is what they wear. You see it? All that is done by the time you get to chapter 19. That means the rapture occurred before that. That's what I'm trying to point out to you and showing you that this group is quite a bit different than what you're going to read today in the tribulational saints. They're not the church. The church is going to be complete while the tribulation is going on. You see it? Two different events going on in two different places. So back down to the earth. I'm sorry. You've got to go back down. Chapter number 7. He's talking about tribulational saints. And it's a remarkable thing to mark that Jesus Christ can save even in the tribulation period. The worst experience this world will ever know, and what do they qualify it as? Our God's salvation. Verse 10. That's emphasized. It's a different program, I know, than what the church is. The Old Testament saints have their own program, and it's good too. The millennial saints have theirs, and that's good too. None of these are inferior. We just happen to be the ones who are in the church age. And there's a gap between Judgment 6 and Judgment 7. And you're looking at it today. While the world is facing His wrath, it would seem that the Lord's grace and mercy and salvation have all taken a back seat. It would seem that way. I say seem, right? It would seem that way, but it cannot be true. The Lord never performs one act of His great divine actions at the expense of another. He is consistently everything He is. If He is fully holy, He is also fully loving, isn't He? If He's completely gracious, He is also full of wrath all the time too. You cannot separate them into little boxes like I've got on my wall back here. The Lord is consistent in every way all the time. So he didn't say, well, I'm going to pack up my salvation. The church is saved. Let's get them out of the way. And now all I am is wrath. He saves. During the tribulation period, he saves. This is an amazing thing. Verse seven or verse ten says, and they cry out with a loud voice. There's a group in heaven that you're going to hear someday. I'll give you an idea of what they sound like. The word is krabzo in the Greek, crying out. It's the sound of a crow in a very bad mood. Alright? It's a terrible sound. Krabzo is the Greek word for it. And this is the sound they're making, and it's constant. It's a present tense. They are constantly shouting out this, and it's going to get your attention. Salvation belongs to our God. That's what tribulational saints will say, because they will know it too. They're going to have this theme in their heart. Salvation belongs to our God. Even in the worst case scenario, Jesus can save. Here's the evidence. First, you see 144,000 people being saved. You saw that list. I read through it, right? They are Jews. How do I know they're Jews? Well, verse 4 says that they're of the, every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then go through the names. Judah, Reuben, Asher, Gad, Naphtali. Who are these people? Descendants of Israel. Jacob, 
They're his children. And you say, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, Pastor. There's somebody missing. Did you read the list and notice? Some of you said, oh, I know what he's talking about. Dan's not in the list. Uh-oh. What happened? Ephraim's not in the list either. You say, well, there's a problem. I don't think there's a problem. I'll tell you what. There are lists like this in Scripture in a lot of different places. Genesis has it. Uh, there's all kinds of, Ezekiel has it, all kinds of New Testament places that have it. And you know what the Lord has done? And it's fun. Almost every time, he changed the list. He'd take one name out and put another name in. And we said, ooh, that bothers me. Because there's somebody missing. He's got a plan for this. I can't tell you exactly what it is. To tell, be honest with you, I don't know why Dan and Ephraim's out. There's a lot of speculation. Some people say, well, Dan was the one who introduced idolatry heavily into Israel. So they're kind of, mark them off the list. But the problem is, later on, there's a list in their back. I don't know what to do with that, do you? The other side is that they say, well, Ephraim, though. Aren't they important? Well, you know what? When they needed a cheerleader for idolatry, guess who it was? Ephraim. He said, well, maybe that's what it is. This is not their final state. This is the tribulational saints. And for whatever reason, he left two tribes out, and he put Joseph in there, which is interesting, because he put Manasseh in there too, and Manasseh is his son. He said, okay, what's this mean? The Lord is capable of saving whoever he wants. And in this, he gives us a list, and these are real Jews. They're labeled like Jews, They have the terms that God gives to them as Jews. And I can't explain all of why there's only this this little bit or that little bit. But this is what I do know. That today, Scripture talks about the Jews being hard to reach. Romans emphasizes that. They're hard to reach. God has intentionally hardened their hearts. And Paul constantly said, oh, that God would save them. And there's calls for that all the time. They're hard to reach. That's in the church age. When the church age is over, Jews are being saved. That's what you're reading right here. They're they're, they're a unique group. It starts to talk about them in these verses that are in front of you, verse 4 through verse number 8. Just a side note for a minute. One One little side note. When you start the chapter, you remember there's four angels at the four winds holding it back. And somebody says, oh, don't, don't do anything yet. There's going to be judgment. But we've got to save these people. So we've got to go mark these elect before you can judge the world. Well, here's what I think it is. He's not holding back the judgment because they're holding the wind. Holding the wind is the judgment. We don't think of this often. Because when it gets really windy, we say, oh, this is terrible. When we have tornadoes, we say, this is terrible. Do you know what this world would be like if there's no wind? Do you know what that would do to our oceans, our lakes, to all the things that make this world happen? Without wind, we're in trouble. The judgment already began. And he says, hold on, before you finish that one and destroy everything, let me mark these people. They're holding back the wind, and that is the judgment. Try a hundred degree day with no breeze. That's not easy. 
There's a lot of things that happen that are bad when the wind doesn't blow. All those little whirly things all over Ponca City or someplace else, they're not going to work. They're going to sit right there, right? Anyway, side note, I just wanted to point that out. But we're talking about tribulational people here. The judgment is taking place. 144,000 of them are set aside. Here's what the Lord calls them. They are my bond servants. Verse number 3 says, They're my bond servants. What is a bond servant? Dr. Charles Ryrie defined it this way. A bond servant or a bond slave has no will and no worries of his own. I like that. They have no will and no worries of their own. Their master's will and their master's provisions are theirs. The Lord says, in the midst of this terrible time, trust me, you're mine. He marks out 144,000 to seal them as his bond servants. From every tribe of the sons of Israel, it mentions this. Now, what's interesting, and you probably might be thinking this in the back of your head, the Jehovah Witnesses love this text. Because they say, that's us! Well, they also call it spiritual Israel, too. Anytime you put spiritual in front of anything that you're defining theologically, you could put any definition you want. Because it's not following Scripture. You could do it, beef it up however you want, define it however you want. And they teach that the spiritual Israel, uh, most of them, by the way, say they say they're already anointed and dead and in heaven awaiting their rule over the earth. So they're talking about a group that's already sealed, they're already saved. They're, most of them are in heaven already. And here I'm reading it and saying it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. But they teach as if it does. These are not, they say, these are not real Jews. Yes, they are. Scripture says so. They say their election is now. And this text says their election is during the tribulation. How do I know that? Keep going down the page. What did you see in verse number 14? When there was an identity thing going on with the groups of people up there, who are these people? These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. Mark that. It's important that you see this. The Jews are first marked. 144,000 are marked. They are marked out as special, unique individuals. Bond servants of the Lord. Apparently, they're not going to perish during the tribulation period. The Lord has marked them separately. And He can do that. I think we're going to encounter them later. Stay tuned. But I think we're going to encounter them later in chapter 19. When the Lord comes back to rescue His church. Or I mean His his Jews uh, during the tribulation period. You're going to find them in cities called Petra and Basra. And places like that, when the Lord comes to rescue them. That's who I think this group will be. It does not say that they're evangelistic in nature. It just says that they are marked by the Lord as his servants. That's all it says. What they do, we're not exactly sure yet. Chapter 14 will give us more. Hold that thought. He can save the Jews. You see it? He can do that. That's unique. That's special. God is able to. Salvation belongs to Him. And that's the first clue you get in chapter 7. Uh, even in the midst of this horrible time, 
he can save his Jews. The second group is following that. And I know I go quickly here, but verse number 9, there's a great multitude which no one could count. You could tell they're not Jews because they're from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and all tongues. And they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they're clothed in white robes and palm branches are in their hand. And they're the ones singing the song that sounds like the crow. They're shouting it out. Salvation to our God. And they're worshiping Him. Verse number 11 shows. Verse number 12 shows. They're worshiping Him. And John says, who are these? And in verse 14, these are the ones who've come out of the great tribulation. There it is. In the midst of the seal judgments, there's a group identified as coming out from that tribulation. And they've washed their robes. And they've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They will be saved by Jesus Christ and only Him. Because He's the only one who can save. He's the only one who can save. And that won't change when we're raptured out of this earth. Because the blood of Jesus Christ is greater than we even know. This reason, he says in verse 15, they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple. Oh, it's a beautiful chapter. Really it is. It's a beautiful chapter. The Lord has power to save even in the midst of wrath. I'm going to bring to a point here. You ready? It's very important that you understand. I set all the table for you for this purpose. So many times we give circumstances, we give scenarios that we give a lot of credit to, more than they deserve, to say why you think this person can't be saved or that person can't be saved. It's just impossible. You know them? You met them before? That person? I would never dream in a million years that salvation could actually Reach a person like that. Too often we let those circumstances, we let those scenarios develop, and we fall into a trap that says that salvation isn't possible for somebody. We say it can't be done. One group can't reach them. Another group, they're too far gone. Another group, they're too antagonistic. Another group, they're just too fill in the blank. Who are these people? People today who are not saved and they miss the rapture. Are they savable? On the other side? Yes, they are. Jews today who have stubborn hearts refuse to hear the gospel. Are they savable? Yes. Because salvation is not based on the person, it's based on Jesus Christ. And He can save anybody. That's what the chapter is pointing out. Even in the midst of wrath? Yes. Even if they miss the church age? Yes. Even if they miss the rapture? Yes. Even if they're Jews? Yes. What's this picture? The representative, this group here that we're looking at in verse 9, the representative of every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. What nation is left out? What race is left out? What tongue is left out? Do we not at times think there are some groups 
that it doesn't seem likely they're ever going to be saved? Look at what Christ can do. Look at what He can do. Even in the midst of tribulation, Jesus saves. He saves. Salvation belongs to Him. And it's a glorious thing that we get to see in the midst of all this judgment, Jesus is saving still. He's saving still. Why did I bring that up today? Why did I emphasize it this way rather than talk about all the terrible things you can see in the chapter or in the next chapter or such like that? Because maybe, maybe practically, since it's written to the church, maybe it's good for us to see this and say, you know what? I've got a hard case I've been praying about for a long time. Somebody I sure want to know, I want them to know the Savior. And I've been praying for them and it seems like their heart is rocked. You know them? Don't say their names. You've been praying for them. And you say, Lord, can you penetrate that stubbornness, that callousness, that, that antagonistic attitude? They are so adverse to you. Can you even save them? I think this is good for us to read. Because these are two groups totally adverse to Christ today. And in the midst of the tribulation... They're saved. Don't quit praying, folks. Because your Savior can do it. You see? Your Savior can do it. We can't. We can't. Our words are inferior, I'm sorry to say. Uh, They're weak. I mean, Paul walked around and says, I carry a a gospel, it's a treasure, but it's in an earthen vessel. (laughs) And more times than not, we, we don't present it like it could be. We don't pray enough over it. We don't, we don't present it in the power of the Spirit. Sometimes we're very weak and inferior and all that. But it's not us that saves. It's the Word of God that saves. It's the Savior who saves. And that's the difference we have when we start entering into these texts. The same one who's bringing the wrath is the only one who can save. And he does. And he does. I wanted to set that before you today. As we go into the deeper things, I want to keep bringing it up. It's not outside of his ability to save. Even in the worst time this world will ever know, he does it. He does it. So what do we do with this? Like I said, you praying for somebody? Keep praying. You want to see the Lord reach him? Be useful. You're his bondservant. Share his word. Pray for them. Jesus can save. Don't give up. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep praying. And keep looking. He's coming. That's what it's all about, isn't it? He's coming. Are we going to be ready? He who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Are we ready? If the Lord should come today, are you ready to see him? Yes. Well, you have no choice. You will see him. I always joke about this, but, you know, it says that we're going to be changed. First Corinthians 15, we shall be changed. Some of us, I know, are going to have a lot of changing on the way up. But we shall be like him. Praise the Lord for that. This is hope, folks. This is the hope. In the midst of these headlines we're reading on the pages, this is our hope. It's a letter to the church. 
to remind us to look to our Savior. Look to our Savior. I'm going to encourage you to pick up chapter 8 this next week. All right? Chapter 8. Put on a seatbelt when you read it. It's like, woo! Boy, is that a good one. we we'll read chapter 8. We're going to that next week. Heavenly Father, your word is powerful. Your salvation is wonderful. And we thank you for the glimpse. It's not much of a glimpse, but a significant glimpse, I think. That in the midst of all these terrible things, we see a Savior who saves. And that's great to see. Thank you for giving us just a small glimpse today in the midst of all these things. I pray that it penetrates our heart. Do what you want with that, Lord. For each of us, there might be things that that triggers in our hearts and in our lives that will drive us closer to you. Maybe there's somebody today here who's never known Jesus as their Savior. Jesus saves, and that's our message. And today they could turn to him by faith and know him as their Savior too. I pray, Lord, that if there's somebody here right now, you do the work and capture that heart where only you can. We thank you for your faithfulness to who you are and what you have said. And we're learning of that as we go through this book, confident in our coming Savior. And I thank you, Lord, for again giving us an opportunity to look at it. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.